Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa. And welcome to The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey with Peter Bale in Hoon Bay. How are you? Hi, Bernard. I'm good, thank you. I've been I've been thinking about The Hoon a lot this week, and I think we've got a great show for everybody this week. We're going to go to overseas, to Waiheke. We're going to uh, have somebody from BCG who isn't paying for the privilege to come, but maybe we should. That's Boston Consulting Group, who invented the quadrant slide, which I use a lot. Mm. We've got a bit on the environment. We've got some great political stuff. And I think I suspect you're going to slip from solutions journalism straight into the horse race. There will be some horse race stuff, but actually, we always have uh, Josie Pagani on at the end of the show, and she's talking quite a bit about big ideas and actually proposing changing. Mm-hmm. And it's good that we're you know getting away from who can sneak into power with the lowest target. Um, so that's that's good, and I'm sure that. Uh, Richard Hobbs from B- BCG has some definite ideas on how to electrify New Zealand. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting, Bernard. And I, and I, I just I was really struck listening to the wireless this morning that um, this idea of abandoning GST on on uh, fresh foods really seems to have gathered momentum. And I just cannot imagine how Grant Robertson can quite stomach it. Maybe he just expects to be in opposition, so we'll never have to put it into implementation. But we can discuss that when we get to the political. Yes, uh, that's coming up. We'll uh, look ahead to the next week and the 54 days until the election. Plenty to to get our teeth into uh, this week, including uh, on climate. It's been a hell of a week on climate. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time with Catherine and uh, she's interviewed James Shaw about a big issue on the climate and she'll Mm -hmm. be joining us shortly because I don't know about you, but these extraordinary pictures um, that we're seeing at the moment out of not just Hawaii, but also Beijing, pretty much Mm -hmm. every day you see these just stunning, you know, floods, fires. It's, it's like suddenly the, someone has flicked the turbo switch. Flicked the Armageddon switch. Yeah. Mm. So I think we have to be careful about this as always. And you remember, we talked about this, I think three weeks ago when I wrote something for the spinoff that, that triggered part of our conversation about this, which was driven in part from that amazing new service called the Weather Attribution Initiative yeah. at uh, Imperial College in London. And you know, not everything is attributable to climate change. And I was really struck by a very thoughtful piece in the New York Times today, very quickly about this Hawaiian thing, which uh, had excellent information about the reduction in cloud cover over Hawaii over the last five or six years, the introduction of drought tolerant plants that had that are much more much less fire resistance, and and a really significant um, fall in rainfall and an increase in temperatures. So the weather attribution group hasn't, so far as I know, but I'll check while Catherine's talking, attributed the the Hawaii fire. But yeah, that what I was really struck by Bernard, and I think it's gone up to fifty six deaths now, uh, is the obliteration of a seaside town. I, I think we can really identify with it. And it's also important that that town apparently is was the epicenter or the center of the uh, Hawaiian kings, you know, the, the, oh. the, the kind of Hawaiian royalty um, as, it, as it was pre-colonialization or possibly imposed by coloniliz- colonialization, not unlike ours. Um, you know, there'll be some real feeling right across the Pacific um, with mm. indigenous people about the consequences of that fire. And the Pacific and the South Pacific is in the front line of this um, existential climate. Yeah. And there's Catherine. Mm, Catherine, thank you very much for coming on. Welcome in. Catherine Dyer, for those who are joining us after a while, is our new uh, climate correspondent. This week, we've been digging into what apparently is the boring topic of climate finance disclosure, but tell us what we've learned about not just New Zealand's banks and insurers and whether they're prepared properly or modelling their outcomes properly, but also the rest of the world, because a gap seems to have opened up between what the climate scientists 
believe is going to happen, not just to the um, temperature, but the the physical effects of that and what the bankers and insurers have mm. been until now um, forecasting. Tell us about that gap. Yeah, well, so we were looking at a report that was put out by the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries in the UK. And so they got together with Professor Timothy Linton, Lenton, and he is a climate scientist who does a lot of work on tipping points and, and things like that. So they got together with him and they had a look at some of the modelling scenarios, so the climate modelling scenarios that have been used in the finance industry and came to the conclusion that they are really significantly underestimating climate risk. Mm. And that a lot of that is to do with some of the inputs from things like the integrated assessment models that come out of the the IAMs, that come out of the IPCC. And so, and that's where you get that that kind of difference between what climate scientists are saying the physical risks are and and the models that they do that look at look at the ecosystem and the earth system and how that operates and um, some of the then the economic models um, that look at the social and economic impacts and we spoke to Professor Stephen Keane um, and his explanation for this was essentially to say well you know what the um, social and economic models take from those physical models you'd expect them to be looking at all of the information that the physical Mm. scientists are, are doing and all of those inputs and all of that knowledge about how climate change is impacting us but really all they really take into those models is the temperature. And then they make up their own damage functions. And what surprised me out of that was that the banks and insurers were looking at the temperature rises up to four degrees and saying, oh, this this might not be too damaging. In fact, there's actually some good things about a slightly higher temperature, which we now know as the temperature gets higher almost exponentially, the extremity and the frequency of the huge climate events becomes more intense and, as we've already seen in the last two weeks, more and more damaging. Is it fair to lump the bankers and the insurers into one? Because my perception was that the actuaries and the bank and the insurers have been way ahead of this. And it's the bankers who have, I mean, the insurers have commitments to uh, fossil fuel people, which will, you know, which, which is about liability. But you know they're not investors in fossil fuel as such. The insurers are also, you know, their actuarial work is very advanced. Well, one of the things we we found, I mean, we started looking exactly at well, what's what are New Zealand banks and financial institutions going to be doing under the new climate risk disclosure regime, and so they're looking at an approach um, which is based on what they call scenario analysis where they do kind of rich narrative storylines and they look at what are some plausible things that could happen based on what we know about climate change and and what impact would that have on us which is all you know that that's all very you know best practice and forward thinking and all that sort of thing but even within that when they start trying to quantify those impacts and they start drawing on some of even the international best practice models for quantifying those effects, you're still actually seeing this climate risk, you know, that the underestimation of risk is kind of coming in through that path. And we're at that point in in the story where the rubber hits the road, where suddenly if your models are wrong, you're being whacked with big financial costs now when these big uh, storms come through. And we've seen it in the last five or so years to the point where some of the reinsurers are looking to pull out of entire countries, entire markets. And we've seen in the United States, for example, farmers insurance and a couple of the other really big uh, farmers mutual, uh, big insurers in Florida and California uh, on both flood and storm risk and wildfire risk have pulled out completely from those markets. Mm. You've seen um, the the company... AIG, the insurer that was the used to be the uh, sponsor of the All Blacks, it has pulled out of insuring cars and houses. Going to stick to life insurance because um, really, we're not not in New Zealand yet, I presume, because they own at least four of the big brands in New Zealand, don't they, Bernard? Uh, this this is different. Uh, this is AIG as opposed to IAG. I do apologise then. Okay, yeah. And so, how 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 far are we away then, Bernard or Catherine, from? floodplain or uh, coastal property in New Zealand being uninsurable? Not just not just ones where your geotech report 
makes it an unsurable, which is, was true of one that I looked at a few years ago. But you know, generally, are we going to become uninsurable in certain areas? Do you think? I mean, I think it's probably inevitable that we will do at some point, but um, you know, predicting when exactly that's going to be is a is a job for the actuaries, I guess. What we're seeing, though, is is we're at that point now where the insurers are very seriously looking at the detailed maps, as you suggested, Peter. You know, w- with the flood maps that you can get with the the limbs, the the land information memorandums. Uh, there are now online flood maps which are updated with the new uh, climate forecasts, which um, bring in the the bigger events, the one in two hundred year uh, type events, and. We know from the research that the Reserve Bank has started to pull together and what the banks are starting to understand that in Auckland, for example, up to a third of properties are at risk in some form or another. And we know that Tower Insurance, about six months ago, started doing what it calls risk-based pricing for climate and storm damage across the country. Now, that means going through every map, every street, house by house, working out, is that house in the gully? Is that house too close to the sea? Is that gully, um, has that been subject to a really bad storm lately? How deep does the silt get? Is the house high enough? All of those sort of very detailed uh, bits of information, whereas previously insurers have taken a blanket approach um, saying, well, if you're in the North Island, you're, you're this. If you're in the South Island, you're that. Uh, because that's how the reinsurers saw it. But New Zealand is now, particularly after Gabrielle being reassessed by the reinsurers, Tower is the first to go in with risk-based pricing. But yesterday, Suncorp, the Australian-based insurer which owns Vero and AA Insurance, announced that they too are going to risk-based pricing. And the CEO uh, said that this was likely to mean that premiums would go up by 20%. And the only one left now is, as you suggested, Peter, IAG, which owns State and AMI and a few others. And what we're at now is the point where the dominant player in the market, which is IAG, has more than 60% of the home and uh, content and car insurance market. When it flips, that is going to be a sort of a macroeconomic event in terms of A, pushing up premiums across the country, and B, forcing everyone to think about what this means for their property. Because remember, when your property is uninsured, it immediately becomes unbankable. And there's a particular problem we have at the moment where insurance contracts are rolled over annually. So every year there's a chance for the insurance, the insurer to, to kick you out, basically, or to put up the price so high that you're kicked out. That's once a year. So every year you you dread the letter coming through the mail saying, we've decided that you're in the wrong place and that's it. Because the moment that happens, it be- then becomes very difficult to sell your house. Yeah, because there's a mismatch between the insurance period and your and your uh, um, mortgage. Yeah, exactly. So you have this situation where you could be in a, a zombie-like state where you know you're uninsured. Your bank doesn't know it yet, but you know whoever wants to buy it will find out. And uh, one of the interesting problems we have is that the banks are not talking to the insurers every year. Um, just to check to see if, if their house is still insured. And we end up with a Sergeant Schultz type situation where a lot of people don't actually want to ask the hard questions. <laughs> and and this is where um, we Jesus, are. Nobody, uh, nobody who listens to this podcast is old enough to remember who Hogan's Heroes, although <laughs> Hogan's Heroes. You know, it was one of my favorite shows when I was growing up. Now, Bernard, we've got Richard there. Richard from BCG, we're very, you, we've brought you in because our favorite marketing person who I expect to be Prime Minister of New Zealand before very long, uh, suggested that you had a really amazing report. So Bernard's going to take over and question you on it. And Catherine is here, who is Bernard's offsider, particularly focused on the environment. Yeah, thank you very much, Richard, for coming on. And we've just had a good chat uh, with Catherine about some of the gaps that seem to be opening up in the modelling between banks and insurers and what the climate scientists are saying will be the potential damage of rising temperatures. But you've put out a report this week, uh, which is uh, a really interesting sort of forward-looking uh, constructive piece. And it's in tune with the uh, the things we're looking to do a bit more on the kaka, which is come up with new ideas, ideas that maybe are outside the political mainstream or not being discussed in the usual political debates 
from you know all sorts of different people in which we look at the options and say, here's how we could actually make a difference here. Tell us about this uh, this paper that you've put out, which is called... It is called The Green Economy Represents an Opportunity to Supercharge New Zealand. Exactly. Uh, so supercharging New Zealand, the sorts of things that we can do. And I think it's particularly uh, relevant this week with the launch of Rewiring Aotearoa, which is the New Zealand version of Rewiring Australia and uh, the UK set up by Saul Griffiths, the uh, the guy who helped um, flip the Green New Deal into the Inflation Reduction Act. Can you tell us about the ideas you've got on, you know, electrifying New Zealand? Yes, absolutely. So, well, thank you so much for having me uh, on the podcast today. And uh, the, the idea of this paper was really around you know, we'd done a bit of work last year looking at the 10 actions to accelerate New Zealand towards net zero. And that was really focus on what are the lowest cost ways mm. that we could transition the economy to net zero and how could we accelerate that journey. We then, towards the end of last year, released a, a piece called The Future is Electric, which was a decarbonisation roadmap for the whole energy sector where electrification was at the heart of accelerating the decarbonisation there. Mm. And then this report, we we sort of looked at it and we thought, well, what if, what if we took a different lens on this issue? What if we said this is not all about just looking at what is the least cost way to do things? What if there is a green growth opportunity here? What if, if we look at it and as BCG, we, look, we, we identified that the green economy globally will be worth $9.4 trillion dollars New Zealand a year by 2030, so triple from the point today. How well is New Zealand placed in terms of that from a competitive advantage perspective? And how could it capitalise on some of these opportunities? So what um, sort of things could we do that would put us ahead and, and I assume, grow the economy? I'll, I'll come in with a degrowth question in a minute. Yes. So, I mean, the focus really is on helping to grow the economy. Uh, there are main five main areas. So the first is ecotourism. It's delivering tourism through more environmentally sustainable travel and tourism experiences. Sustainable construction, so more sustainable homes, buildings, and infrastructure, particularly leveraging our strong position in wood and biogenic building materials. Low-carbon energy system, you know, that's clearly capitalizing on our highly renewable electricity base to attract low carbon industry and accelerate the transition to net zero through electrification. Sustainable food production. So this is really around world leading sustainable food and aggressive investment and R&D to reduce methane emissions mm -hmm. on farms. And green consumer products. You know, how can we think about developing premium retail products with lower environmental impacts? Richard, that seems to be remarkably close to the pure New Zealand strategy that was for tourism some years ago. And therefore, that just seems remarkable. I mean, it, you know, having that, that you know, the whole uh, hydro position in New Zealand, geothermal power, you, I don't hear what you've just said from New Zealand politicians. And yet that does sound like a really excellent set of alternatives. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, it, it's, it's a significant opportunity for the country. And actually, it's quite a, you know, there are areas of this, which, you know, we're looking at going, this could be, you know, there are some threats in mm. this. I mean, you look at New Zealand, how far away it is from the rest of the world, you look at this trend around the premiumization of travel, people mm. um, willing to spend more on premium travel experiences, which are linked in some instances to more sustainable travel. And that's a good thing. But then on the flip side, you look at it and you go, these carbon miles, you know, that could be quite, you know, looking out 30 years. Quite a negative. Yeah. Quite a negative. And so we've got to really think about sustainable aviation fuels and other technologies and how we can uh, continue to support the economy through this transition. Richard, one of the things that is crucial at the heart of this is how do we electrify everything and how yes. do we create the networks and the renewable uh, generation to do it? And one of the struggles I can see us having and having had for a decade or so is the status quo, you know, in, invested assets problem. If you own an asset which is going to be made less valuable or redundant 
by this big shift, you understandably fight to keep it. And uh, one of the problems we have at the moment is two key sources of uncertainty about investment. Firstly, no one's quite sure what Rio Tinto wants to do with TI Point. That's mm. 14% of our electricity, and it's all renewable down the bottom of the South Island. We now know we can bring it into the grid, but those people who own the power stations connected to it are understandably reluctant to invest in huge amounts of new supply until they know whether or not TY Point will stay or go, or if it does go, whether it's replaced by something else, possibly hydrogen. And then secondly, we've got this dry year problem where the government has talked about maybe bringing in a big battery like Lake Onslow or other types of hybrid batteries. And if you're thinking of building a you know $500 million wind farm or a $200 million solar farm, and you're not quite sure where you're going to put it, um, how it's going to be dealt with in the dry years, whether or not it's going to be outcompeted by the T point aluminium being dumped on the market, how are we going to get past these existing players with their mm. existing profit uh, motives and uh, rules? How are we going to get past that to actually just absolutely swamp the country with new generation, new electricity networks? Because otherwise it's not going to happen, is it? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple of some really, there's a lot in that to unpack, by the way. <laughs> um, so the first thing I'd say is there's always uncertainty in markets. Um, and there are some uncertainty factors that are larger than others. And you've just pointed out a couple of them around TY Point, et cetera. I think it looks like the situation there is probably firming up a bit more for the positive. Like, um, you know, the at least if you look at sort of the position of that facility and the cash flows, you know, it's probably in a better position than it was when it was, you know, talking about a different alternative pathway a few years ago. So that's positive in, in 2020. The other thing is that we now know that there are potentially some viable alternatives around data centers and um, and hydrogen uh, and, and other um, options, which would, um, you know, mitigate that risk. So I think now that situation's a bit better. And there used to be a lot of concern about that demand erosion. I think it's, we're in a better place now. Dry year will remain an issue. I think one of the positive things is that as you build more renewable generation, if you think of um, each unit of electricity you produce from wind and solar is one more unit of electricity you don't need to mm. run lower from your lakes. So a really good analogy is that solar and wind are, are like virtual rain. And as we build more and more of the solar and wind, we can actually be in a better position from our modelling, what we found in the future is electric, actually in a bit of a better position to manage our um, our dry year situation, uh, at least with a modest and a, a very modest amount of thermal generation in there. Um, if, if you want to get to 100%, it's, it's a different question. Mm, Catherine, you and I have been talking in the last few weeks about this increasingly topical and frankly uncomfortable idea of degrowth. Uh, Richard, you, you've talked a, a pretty positive story here about, you know, um, in, bringing in new technology, new industries, expansion. Sounds quite exciting. But Catherine, what's your views on degrowth and whether this outlook can actually match? Um, I, I'd just say like there was a, a paper that came out just recently in Nature Sustainability, which looked at climate policy researchers. Um, so looking more at the academic world. Um, and they found that something like 85% of climate policy researchers in the OECD are highly sceptical of green growth as a proposition for the future. And particularly people in social sciences, which is my background, <laughs> are highly, you know, 85% are highly sceptical of green growth. My view would be, you know, in order to, the amount of decarbonisation that we require over the next 20, 30 years is a hell of a lot steeper than people are really seriously grappling with. And it really requires a wholesale shift in where you put your productive capacity. And so, you know, just to build out the infrastructure, the public infrastructure that we're going to need to support that, you're going to have to switch all of your productive capacity to there. And that means taking it away from the sort of things that produce private luxury, <laughs> You know, so the big SUVs, the giant houses, the flights all over, you know, you've got to take all of that and shift it into, if you're serious about doing this, you have to put all of that productive capacity into building your public infrastructure. 
or none of that becomes possible. And if you don't do that, then your future world, you end up really focusing a lot more on increasing debt in order to keep up with economic growth, more crime, more war, you know, basically the hell in a handbasket scenario. So, yeah, on that view, I would say, you know, we we, we really need to start talking about a post-growth world um, as opposed to a green growth world. Yeah, this is a very interesting point. So, I mean, firstly, there are as well, I think, you know, other kind of interesting social overlays of is it actually feasible for society to hold together in a world of degrowth and would potentially destabilisation caused under that economic system actually lead to counterproductive um, shifts in terms of compromising our potential to advance technologies, etc.? A lot of um, governments over centuries have essentially used growth as their way to manage change. They've effectively said, um, we, can, we can share the, the fruits of growth with you to avoid us having a fight over who owns the last bit of growth that we created. Yes, and then and then we have to look at these other, we have to look back at different issues and environmental issues that we may have solved in some ways and say, are they similar to what they are today? So you can imagine in the 1800s in London where I think you had about a million people living there and it was a cesspit. I mean, you had like, that. you look at the, the videos, there's smog everywhere. The rivers are just completely laden with, um, you know, not good things come from from people um, and essentially it is like in this poor sanitation and this disease and people were saying at the time and you know Mal, um, uh, Malthus would, would, was, was saying and with the Malthusian angle of like there's just no way we could have even one more person here you know we need to get this down to 500,000 or less for this to be sustainable. Fast forward now when you walk through London and you've got multiples of that in terms of people there isn't smog there isn't effluent, human effluent running through streams. Um, and it appears to be a much more livable and functioning city, but for the fact that we're still bellowing out, you know, billions of tonnes of CO2 in the atmosphere mm. <laughs> every year and not meeting that environmental um, uh, constraint. So then you so then you kind of roll that forward and you go, can you, can you imagine a world in which we can do the same things we've done with other environmental issues, but with CO2? And then you look at countries that may be like the UK who have probably gone really hard on this agenda and you go, okay, they've probably reduced their emissions now to the point where coal is at the lowest level for about a century. CO2 is maybe about 40% lower than it was, 30 to 40% lower than it was in 1990, but the economy in that time has grown roughly about um, 40, 50%. But globally... Coal, burning of coal is higher than it's ever been. Globally, CO2 is higher than it's ever been. Um, a lot of the po pollution that uh, used to trouble London has just relocated. There's very little evidence that you can, you can decouple emissions and pollution from economic growth at any kind of scalable level in the next 30 to 50 years. And I wonder too whether, Richard, you know, we've had a lot of talk about how technology can can effectively um, solve our way out of this problem. Um, we become much more efficient with our use of energy. Google, for example, just in the last couple of days has come up, is using AI to help redirect planes at very high altitude to reduce their uh, contrails, to reduce effectively the, the damage by about 20%. Those sorts of things can be done. But when we look at the the great promises of carbon capture, of um, methane re reduction, even hydrogen. We just, I wonder if we've got time to develop that tech before the tipping points are tipped. I know, I agree. It's really, really hard. I look forward to where we need to be in terms of global emissions from 50 gigatons down to 25 gigatons a year by 2030. We're just nowhere close to that trajectory. Mm. Like, it's, it's almost like I'm just, yeah, it's, it's going to be very, very, very difficult. And so then you go, well, we're going to have to accelerate faster into negative emissions territory post-2030. So where, so where do you get to? So I take a step back and I go, okay, what are the economic technologies we have today, right? What are the technologies where the green premium is actually negative? Like it's cheaper to deploy these technologies mm -hmm. than we have for existing technologies. Solar, wind, very soon batteries, heat pumps replacing for, for lower and medium temperature heat, and energy efficiency 
and forestry, better land management and productivity and better farming practices in agriculture. Okay, what are the things on the horizon that we need to do between now and 2030 that get us in a really good position where we can get the other technologies that we need rapidly down the cost curve like we have with solar and wind over the last decade, like 70 to 90% declines? Okay, so hydrogen, maybe CCUS, not sure. Mm. Um, Methane inhibitors. Fusion. Fusion's not 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 on that time horizon, but so it's, it's, like, it's not on that time horizon, but it's yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah, a very no, no, exciting exactly. prospect. Yeah, yeah, and so then I and, and then you look at those two classifications of different technologies, um, those for which there's a negative green premium, those for which there's a positive green premium, but we need to get it down. Mm. And you go for those with a negative green premium, we just need to deploy that stuff as fast as we possibly can and as expensively as we possibly can. Richard, just to be just to be clear and fair to it. Because I, I tend to, I'm, I'm, I'm very pro your kind of argument um, because it is very seductive to um, evil capitalists such as me. And I think Catherine's one is a bit bleak, but I also understand that as well. Presumably, BCG still has clients in the fossil fuel industry. Just to be absolutely clear, where you're, I mean, I, I doesn't, I know that doesn't. Let's let's say that that doesn't contaminate your particular report at all. But presumably, the firm you're working for still has big you know commitments to fossil fuel companies because it's one of the biggest consulting firms in the world yes we do work for some fossil fuel companies and we have policies around certain things as as it relates to our climate and sustainability yeah good i'm i'm not meaning that you should apologize for that or justify it but i just it's almost like i just want to say that out loud catherine i what i worry about with this this zero or negative growth aspect is China is not going to accept uh, negative growth. China's just about to go into a deflationary period, and China's going to do all it can to avoid being China. But in New Zealand, we also have a growing, you know, we have an aging Pakeha population and a growing, you know, indigenous and Pacifica population. And they expect the same kind of living standards, if not higher, than that Pakeha generation that's getting old has had. What do you, what, I mean, I know it's a it's a dilemma, Catherine. And, I'm, and you're a journalist. I'm not asking you to defend the entire thesis. Um, so the way I'd look at that is, first of all, I'd say from my point of view, I don't think anybody's going to accept that voluntarily, um, hmm. let alone China or anywhere else. The second thing I'd say is that currently about ten percent of the global population is responsible for about fifty percent of the emissions. Everybody doesn't have to degrow; those guys do. Right? Yeah. Um, and if you're talking about the OECD, it's about a third of the people in the OECD. Now, we can tell a story within post-growth language that is a really positive, good story for the other two-thirds of the population of the OECD who can look forward to a more equitable situation in the world. They can look forward to more investment in public infrastructure. They can look forward to higher well-being levels, more community orientation, we can, you know, have a a situation where we actually have private sufficiency and public luxury, you know. So for most people, this is actually a really positive um, story and the future can be better and and we can either have no growth um, in emissions and in GDP for the majority of people, which is already the case, actually, seeing as most of us haven't seen our well-being increase since the 1980s. Mm. Um, At and for those people, don't turn uh, this into a housing conversation, please, Catherine. Because otherwise, you know that will just. <laughs> yeah. So all I'm saying is, this is not a negative story for most people, but unfortunately, the people for whom it would be a negative story are the ones that have their fingers on the on the power buttons, mm-hmm. right? And so you would have to have a significant change and challenge to the status quo. There would be some instability, and you know, potentially, you would have. Um, you know, some class war issues going on there. Um, But if you start to, you know, I don't think there's any real trigger for changing the negative outcomes that we see in front of us unless we start to talk about equity and unless we start to push some of those buttons. That's so interesting. So, because, And I wonder also whether um, it's about how these things hit the United States. And, of course, we've seen the, Mm. um, you know, the Biden, the various Biden sort of, pseudo climate uh investments but you know they're deliberate and they're and they're about protectionism as well and they're, i think what do we call them the anti-inflation act but mm. i suspect things like the hawaii fires the california fires 
some of these things will motivate certain forces to um, mm. take more rapid action. The physical climate risks that are involved in not doing something about it will also produce a lot of instability. So absolutely, absolutely. Well, well I think we, we Bernard and I talked. Well, we talked. I think possibly a couple of weeks ago, Catherine, about the um, you know the, the migration across the uh, English Channel and across the Mediterranean, and and a lot of that isn't yet necessarily 100% attributable to climate, but it most, most certainly will be. This question of can we um, get out of this and still grow uh, is unfortunately real. And, it, and in a way, it's being forced on us by the planet. A good example is Catherine talked rightly about how you know China doesn't want to give up its growth aspirations, neither does America. And you know, the theory is that someone's going to have to surrender something. But actually, I think the planet's going to force the surrender. Uh, mm. If you look at what's happened with Beijing in the last two or three weeks, and also how, and we talked earlier before you came on about how the insurance companies are being literally forced out of entire states by the sheer cost of um, the damage uh, of this, we may not be choosing to degrow. We may be forced to degrow. Uh, by the planet, not some sort of army or some sort of UN body or anything, um, which is sort of sobering. Uh, Richard and, and Catherine, so thank you so much. Thank for you so much, Richard. That was really kind Lovely. of you. And and sorry for asking you that slightly curly one. I just wanted to put it in there slightly as a, a, a and I know your report is not influenced by that. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Well, welcome to the show, to Carmen Parahi, uh, Peter. Um, so, Carmen, I hope you realise that this is one of the most important podcasts in New Zealand. Well, the Kaka, <laughs> Bernard's, Bernard's, Bernard's Substack <laughs> is extremely important. And um, we have this lovely audience of, you know, often we get about 100 people on and they take great interest in it and attention to it and, and, are, and are highly critical as well. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that you and I took part in something that you organised today, this week. Which, which you called Te Matarau. And it was a gathering of most of the news organizations in New Zealand. I don't, I'm just trying to think of who wasn't there. Um, I don't think Sean What's-His-Name was, was there. I was there for reasons that I think we used to work together. And um, as you know, I have a, a, a connection to old stuff and to old Nelson Evening Mail. And we worked on that uh, charter together. But it was really interesting that politicians decided that this gathering of media people to discuss underrepresented audiences, which is how I took it to be, then said, this is a follow-up to the Public Interest Journalism Fund, and you're all forming a cartel. And the slightly ludicrous person who Burden's told me about, who apparently is in Nikki Hager's book about dirty politics uh, from the Taxpayers Union, said that this was needed to be referred to the, Com the Commerce Commission in order to uh, prevent a cartel being created. Now, I didn't feel when I was coming onto the Point Chev Marae, um, which I know is not its correct name, but the, but the Marae and Point Chev, that I was joining some sort of commercial cartel. Would you like to tell, tell us a little bit? I mean, David Seymour jumped on it. Do you want to explain, because you were the organiser, what, what it was all about? Yes, yeah, so he uh, mahana ki so just greetings to both of you for all of the work that you've done for many years. Really important work in journalism and um, uh, in your different spaces. Uh, and the reason you were invited, Peter, was because you're a part of Inmar. Uh, not just because you like to like to uh, hang out at stuff for a while before we booted out, booted you out because you weren't bringing enough chocolate into the newsroom. <laughs> uh, and Bernard, the reason why you weren't invited to to Matsudo, uh was simply my bad uh, oh, no, because okay. we actually tried to put everyone and everyone we could think of on the list, uh, but particularly those that are uh, that are part of the BSA and the Media Council as well, so mm. that are um, that do have uh, codes of conduct uh, and a complaints process, a formal complaints process. So they were all organisations that were part of uh, BSA and Media Council. Uh, and so there was the NPA was there, News Publishers Association, the BSA, the Media Council, Watia News, all the different iwi, TVNZ, RNZ, um, 
Uh, and it was simply about how we could improve representation of Māori uh, and marginalised communities in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We talked about all sorts of things and it was really an, a time, it was the first wānanga of its kind actually, uh, to be held at Te Mahure Hure Marae, which is a beautiful uh, marae in the building called Te Taumata o, te, uh, te Taumata o Kupe. Uh, and we were welcomed in. It was beautiful. Uh, the Hokanga, they gave us a beautiful welcome. They fed us, of course, uh, during the day. But then Willie Jackson came and told us what to write for the next year, right? He, 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 totally he said, did you're not. all here together. I can I can command you to write this yeah. stuff, right? I How know, right? Work? So so all of that aside, Peter, I'm going to let you um, take the oh, floor for all of those things that you've said about all of those other people that tried to derail the wānanga and okay, tried to really good. put a dampener on it. But all of the people that said they were coming, they turned up. And the only ones that didn't mm. was because they were sick. And so it didn't stop them from coming because we knew we were there simply to uh, learn from each other, to actually um, take stock because, you know what, I just want to say that our representation of Māori and underrepresented communities has improved across the board, across all media so it actually has improved, uh, and it's really important that we acknowledge the work that has been done. Things as simple as putting macrons on Māori words, mm. um, improving the pronunciation of Māori words and Māori place names, uh, and also um, trying uh, creating uh, cadetships like Te Rito Program. Um, of course, there's the Pōtiaki work that we've been doing at Stav. Uh, but there's just so many people that are trying to do to do good work because as journalists, we're very fair-minded people. We actually really want to tell great stories of everyone that's in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And by actually focusing on Māori and underrepresented communities, it actually provides us all an opportunity uh, where we're not doing a lot of reporting or we're not, or we may maybe misrepresenting the voices of those of underrepresented communities, that actually provides scope and opportunity for us to um, grow relationships, find beautiful stories and find ways to connect with all our different communities because you guys both know that our demographics in Aotearoa New Zealand are changing and if we don't keep up with our growing demographics and the changes in the generations that are coming after us because, you know, you, us three, we're like heading towards the door of retirement yeah. and moving away from the industry. And the young ones that are coming through, our rangatahi, they've got totally different expectations around how we behave as, as media. And so, uh, so on all of those different things, we just ask everyone to come together uh, and to consider uh, and to share, right, to share some ideas about what people have been doing in their own businesses and organisations um, and what we can learn from each other and any little takeaways, any ideas people wanted to throw down on the floor as well uh, and to just take those away. It was certainly not forming an agreement about future publications, right, other than we try to be um, to understand needs to be more open. I thought that was brilliant that you said to me, you know, I'll handle the David Seymour side of things and the various people who piled on. Come and it might, I've, I've asked the audience uh, who are watching us through YouTube to um, uh, for some questions, and there are a couple, but maybe you could just explain your role at Stuff at Potiaki and how that came about. Yes, yeah, so briefly, um, uh, three years ago, we started a program called Potiaki, uh, guard posts, and it is our anti-discrimination anti uh, fair representation strategy. So it is understanding uh, discrimination in our practices, if there are any, and being aware of them, uh, and also um, how we can, and fair representation, which is equi equitable representation. So it was an acknowledgement that we had been underrepresenting Māori, uh, and that we had uh, perhaps been misrepresenting Māori, uh, talking about Māori but not actually including them in stories. And when you think about it as journalists, that's actually not good journalism because uh, we all know, like, five Ws and H. if you talk about someone, you actually have to give them the right of reply. And too often we would talk about Māori but not actually give Māori the right of reply. So And so it's those simple things that we forget uh, so it's, you know, back to basics journalism, really good, just excellence, uh, uh, excellence in journalism. 
uh, and also uh, getting those stories from all our different communities. And so the work uh, was Māori focused at first, uh, but we, through Manakitanga, we expanded it to include um, mm. all communities. Yeah, I, I thought that was one of the best things this week, Carmen, at the event. You know, some of the most powerful representations there, or powerful reminders there, were disabled people, were um, you know non Maori people, and I thought yes. you know the whole it, it, not which is which is not to diminish the Maori element of it at all, but it was about thinking inclusively about the people who make up New Zealand now. C- can I ask you a couple of the questions that our audience is asking you? Is okay. that right? Yes. So, um, and and forgive me. I, I will. I, I, one of them will be about national and act. So I will answer that question if you like, if it's easier for you. Yes, that would be nice. Um, before you start, though, I just wanted to Mahi to Bernard because uh, we have kaka here all the time where I live. Oh, great! And you hear them, and they just they make the worst noise. Not that I'm saying that you <laughs> so make we. the worst noise, <laughs> oh, yeah. Bernard, but you know, of all of the birds, they look beautiful. But as soon as oh, they yeah. open their mouths, oh, oh terrible! It's exactly what oh, it's yeah. exactly why and it's called the kaka. They're forever shredding things. They shred things. They dig holes in things. It's great. Yeah. So Richard Jones says, "Hey, Mihi Nuiki Ako Carmen." Richard. So John Irving asks, is she afraid that NAT, uh, which I guess is National ACT, will undo all her good work? And um, I would say on your behalf, the answer to that is no, because stuff is not responsible to the government. Is that correct? Absolutely. We don't care who's in government. Absolutely yeah. do not care, because we will hold every single one of them to account. Good. I would also say for myself, uh, having, having, been, uh, having had to learn a lot about this, that it is very clear that Chris Finlayson, Bill English, Jim Bolger have driven this process of co-governance and the recognition of tetirity um, for many, many years, and it is not a labour thing necessarily. The origins, the origins of some of the most critical decisions that we're now facing are in national party periods. Yes. Oh, not only that, they also created Fano Order. Yeah. yeah. Fano Order is a Kopapa Māori um, organisation and service, national service, national service, regional and local services. They're Kopapa Māori. They're set up by National and the and Te Pāti Māori, but they're for all all Fano, for all families, whatever culture you're from. That's what Fano Order is for. So uh, that again is a national policy. Okay, so Stephen Smith asks if Carmen could change one thing about the status quo, what would it be? New Zealand and Māori history. Okay, we are brilliant. Also, we are also very ignorant. Uh, all generations except those that are now in primary school are ignorant unless you've learned yourself about New Zealand and Māori and our colonial history. And if we knew our history, I think half of our issues would disappear overnight. Absolutely. Because we would be able to contextualise the issues of the day now and provide context around the issues of the day now because we have history, we have understanding around our colonial systems that were set up, around our Māori history and our New Zealand history. Yeah, and I, and I think we forget, Carmen, how deep, like I'm, I'm of a certain age, some of that I, those ideas that I grew up with about how multiracial we were and how diversity was good and how we were all Kiwis are quite deeply embedded and they require a much deeper understanding and reading of you know, all sorts mm. of people to to understand that. So let me just combine one question before Bernard takes it over, which is I'm combining a couple into two here, which is how is the disability sector represented at the HUI and sort of how were, how were all these other people brought together? Yes, so um, Te Matarau, the Wananga, was always about community uh, news leaders as well as um, academics from all the journalism training schools. So community was invited, and Chris Ford uh, from Media as Allies, uh, he was there, and and others actually as well from D-List, so curative agency mm-hmm. who created D-List, they were all there too, uh, and they all spoke to us about um, understanding uh, disabled people and uh, their views and their perspectives. Uh, but also um, uh, them taking back their power. And what I loved about the curative agency that were there and that talked to us about um, about narratives, about being aware of how creating um, uh, stories over time create narratives over time. And if you get the stories wrong and, and those narratives continue, you can create false narratives 
and negative narratives and harmful narratives. And so, so um, our disabled people were there uh, and uh, our rainbow community, our Muslim community, our different Asian communities, our Pacifica communities, Māori, Pākehā, we were all there, all um, sharing and actually coming and actually, what I love though, right? Because you know what we like, right? Our commercial entities, we want to hold all our commercial secrets mm. to ourselves. We don't want to share. We oh, no, actually... we want to create a cartel. Sorry, oh, I'm, yes. I'm, being, I'm, yeah. I'm not even going to use naughty. those words. Yeah. Those yeah. are your words, not mine. Uh, so, so we, But we were sharing, and we were sharing ideas, and we were sharing things that we were already doing so that we could all improve what we're doing uh, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. A really strong media. A strong media provides a strong society. I, I was also struck before Bernard asked his question that, and, and I used to work in the United States running a non-profit devoted to investigative journalism. And if we were more open, I think, journalistically about the fact that one of the reasons why people think journalism is biased is because it is about representing the people without power. It is about giving them voice. It is about shining light on those who don't just command power. And journalists are determined to shine lights. And I thought that was a very generous event. I didn't feel uncomfortable being there, and I certainly didn't feel as I was creating a cartel. Bernard, go ahead. Before you start, Bernard, sorry, I know I, this is terrible. I'm just going to say I did not know how Peter Bale became a podcast host when he's continually talking and doesn't allow you to speak. All his guests speak either. Terrible, Peter Bale, <laughs> terrible. Um, Carmen, uh I was really impressed with your um, your comments about if only we knew our history better. And I had I've had this idea. I just wanted to throw it in there and then move on, which is so that the amazing work done by the Waitangi Tribunal in investigating specific events and uh, timeframes and um, the stories of what actually has happened in many places often doesn't seem to see the the proper light of day in those places, let alone in the country as a whole. And I have this idea that every school and every place should dedicate a lot of time to actually understanding the stories that uh, have been told by the treaty and a lot of those settlements. And um, I think it's a, that's a one way to get that stuff out there. That is a very important point you raise because it is the most untapped resource in this country. We actually refer to Y262 all the time because Y262 is the most comprehensive record of New Zealand history you will ever find. It is gorgeous and delicious and tells the story of our wonderful uh, Pacific navigators and our wonderful uh, British navigators and our French and European navigators. And it's a remarkable, remarkable historical account and it doesn't get the light of day. And there are so many stories. We actually did Nanu Tirini, which was a, um, a an award-winning series, I should say, that was on stuff, Nanu Tirini. And we actually looked at all of uh, the tribu uh, Waitangi Tribunal, uh, all of the different claims, and we put in context Te Tiriti or Waitangi because we just realised people just don't know enough about history. And stuff actually did campaign to get history and taught in schools. So that was a good one for us. Is, is Y262 Kia Whakapumau? Yes. Great. I'll just send that to the audience. Thank cool. you. Cool. We'll put a link in that in the show notes. Yes. Namihi Nui. Thank you so much. Um, Bernard, you can ask about Rangatira though. Rangatahi. Uh, I will save that for another day because I was so keen to get Josie and, and we've oh, yeah. blown, blown a lot of our time. Before I go, though, Bernard, what I will say is that I just wanted to mihi to you for all of the work that you've done in our business uh, sector for so many years. But our rangatahi are very business savvy, actually, and we've got a lot of Maori, young Māori business uh, entrepreneurs and business students uh, and different business schools across the country that have just got fantastic storytelling skills and really, really clever. And so... I actually want to see strong Māori business stories and articles and editors uh, very soon. Here, yeah, here. Yeah. To be uh, continued. I'd love to know more about that. Carmen, thank Brilliant. you so much. Thanks so much, Carmen. Well, yeah, Josie. Good to see Hello, you, Carmen. <laughs> uh, Josie, sorry, we've um, our our timekeeping skills are absolutely appalling, but we're so glad that you've you've stayed with us. <laughs> thank Mainly you so much. Mainly because Bernard Rabbit's on. Yeah. 
Yeah, but good good conversations, important conversations. Yeah. I've been listening yeah. to it. I, I was perfectly happy just to listen and oh, you know. Cool. <laughs> no, um it's um it's lovely to see you and uh to talk about, you know, fifty four days to go in the election. But what strikes me is 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 how there's a bit of a revolt going on, I think, against the way that our election debates are, are now um rambling on, in which no one really talks about anything serious because everything's been ruled out. And your column this week, in which you basically called bullshit on on the low target politics, was excellent. Tell me about um, you know what you're seeing happening out there. For example, the way that it seems the public have reacted to uh, Chris Hipkins ruling out a wealth tax, <laughs> a chunk of the Labour Party went to green. Yeah, it, it's funny. I mean, the conversation you were just having, and and you mm. come and the stuff that you were saying. I mean. It, it, Where's the big vision about what New Zealand needs to do? And I don't support, I know you were talking before about degrowth, which um, frankly, you know, I think is a daft idea because we can grow in all sorts of ways which are unique, um, environmentally friendly, um, that, that put us on the global stage and do the things that we can do that no one else can do. And one of those things, Carmen, is exactly what you were talking about, Māori culture. So why don't we double down on the fact that our Māori businesses are doing incredibly well in the world. So, you know, let's pour resources and energy and vision and, um, you know, just just kind of cope up with the stuff that works, right? So I, I guess what I'm saying is that everywhere else in the world, they're having these discussions in the US, in the UK, in Australia, all over the place about, you know, what does a new industrial policy look like in the 21st century? Um, you know, so in the, in, in the US, you've got um, Bidenomics talking about, you know, onshoring, friendshoring, uh, bringing mat- uh, manufacturing jobs back. So not the manufacturing jobs of the 1950s, but, you know, um, jobs built around um, green energy, around semiconductors and so on. But the interesting thing, guys, I reckon, is that, that what they're talking about is not climate change, but but economic change. And so they're, they're, they're putting people in the middle of our discussions about, you know, what we do about the climate. And they're talking, they're talking about people-driven growth. You know, what does that look like for us to be sustainable and positive and, you know, excited about the future? So, you know, in the UK, they're talking about securonomics, as Rachel Reeves mm shadow um, uh, chancellor in the Labour Party talking about, you know, what does that mean for the UK? And it means protecting what you've got. It means making sure that you can still trade, that you can still have businesses grow and start up in communities like old coal towns. And, you know, I I grew up in England, born in New Zealand, grew up in England, um, part of the miners' strike in the 80s. The thing that we got wrong about the miners' strike was we were going coal, not doll, what we should have been saying is put put the people, put the job before the coal. You know, what do you, if you're going to stop doing coal, actually turns out that's a good thing, what do you put in those communities in, in, in its place? And Biden calls this, the Biden administration calls this um, place-based economics. In other words, for New Zealand, what do we do to grow the north, the east coast, you know, the places that have just been abandoned by subsequent governments, you know, and there's been small attempts at regional development. And yes, that's going to involve roads, it's going to involve public transport, it's going to involve big ideas, it's going to involve culture and 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 art and and you know, just how do we buzz? <laughs> are you, we are you standing? Are you standing this year, Josie? No, no, Peter. No one likes me. I've, I've alienated well, myself. I do, my and I life. would. I would absolutely vote for you. I mean, there was somebody else who we know, who Bernard and I know, who I'm determined to vote for. But she's a little younger than you. I'd definitely vote for you. How dare you, Peter? How dare you? <laughs> um, <laughs> J- Josie, this is um, you. You're you're identifying enthusiasm and a vision in the political debates overseas that we seem to have lost here. There's like this anti-vision thing. Helen Clark was quite good at it, where she said, "We're sick of big visions. We just want to manage things as they are. We don't want any big more changes." Whereas overseas, um, as you as you you point out, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Joe Biden has effectively flipped the whole debate about uh, climate change and spending on green projects on its head by simply saying to the Republican states, by the way, it's the Republican states who are most enthusiastic about the um, the Green New Deal stuff yeah. that, the, that uh, Biden's pushing through. 
Biden is doing literally tens of trillions of dollars of investment in electrifying America's economy. Much more aggressive than here. Um, uh, Chris Hipkins has just cut the subsidies to encourage uh, bringing in electric cars. And those debates are happening at a much faster, more aggressive, desperate level because often you know, with uh, the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine, there's been a galvanization. Everyone in the Northern Hemisphere has gone, finally, oh, look at these storms killing us. Um, we need to do something right now. Let's, let's treat it like a war, which means we drop everything and we run and we do it. The, the other thing, that's right. I, but the other thing they're doing that we're not doing is they're talking about um, you know, people and communities, you know, and you can't talk about climate change without talking about this stuff too mm. because you can't ask people in with low incomes driving petrol cars because let's let's face facts here, you know, it is not, I can't afford an EV. <laughs> Most people can't, right? So if you're going if, if to talk about climate change without talking about, um, uh, you know, opportunity for people on lower incomes who are driving... Or even a roadmap, actually, Josie, just a simple yeah. roadmap for our different communities would be really mm. good. Mm. Yeah, and, and and it has to be community-led. Carmen, and you just told me you were done. trying to get out of here and, and oh, log off. So I knew, I'm, I'm so like, glad wow, you stayed on. I'm so really glad you stayed on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Forget forget two old white buggers talking bollocks. It's, it's You know, we can have four... Four of us talking bollocks. It's things, yeah, four of us talking bollocks. Yeah. So it's, it's ideas like, and, and these are just ideas that, that I came up talking talking with John, my husband, and others. You know, what about um, um, a, a kind of centre of, of law in Wellington, Commonwealth law, constitutional law, public sector law? Because, you know, it's very rare, actually, in, in, in Commonwealth countries and OECD countries where you've got a capital and, and a, and a centre of excellence around law. For example, that's just one small example. Auckland, the biggest Pacific city in the world. So why are we not some hub for Pacific development? Talking about you know um, uh, um, you know crop growing in the Pacific and and you know how how the Pacific can can become almost like you know Pacific Union like the EU. I don't know. I mean, why are we not generating a sense of of ambition? Ideas? And ambition for the things that only we can know. Well, only we can do. Yeah. Yeah. You could, do you have your yeah. own podcast yet, Josie? No, you are my podcast, Peter. There's a bloody takeover bid for the co-host. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, it's Josie and Carmen Parahi. That's what it is. Love the two aunties over at Cup of Tea. I love it. Right. Alfred Nauru, you know, you can start your own party. We've got four people here. We only yeah, need... Yeah. Five, well, in Romania, months. they always say that, you know, more than three Romanians together is a conspiracy. So, you know. <laughs> but what got <laughs> me onto this, though, is interesting because I read about this this venture capitalist called Paul Graham who wrote about oh, yeah. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Botticelli. How did you get all these scientists, artists, you know, um, amazing minds and geniuses in Florence in, in 1450? Like what was going on there? And it wasn't that suddenly Florence kind of gave birth to all these geniuses it was you in order to get leonardo da vinci you needed florence so you and, need Medi and the medicis but anyway let's yeah and, well, exactly though but and let's say money. let's yeah. try let's sort of replace the medicis with government you know money but you know you need an environment that Jesus is going Christ, to wash your mouth out, but yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe that's the new party the medicis but you, but you actually need everyone to come together and put resources and buzz you can't just have one person go away and do it and that for me um the framing of drop everything this is a a war for a, one of a better phrase let's fix a these massive plan. issues we need yeah. a marshall plan yeah marshall plan um when you look at what was done during those times where literally whole industries were changed from producing cars and washing machines to producing uh, bombers and whatever it was. Obviously, you know, you had the invention of the Christ, have you just been to see Oppenheimer? Jet. Yes. No, I haven't actually. I, I, that's something I need to do. But, yeah. but it strikes me that we've gotten locked into this track of saying we can't change anything. We've got a managerial class who are going to run things and we just need to get down and be cons good little consumers. When you've got the planet boiling, maybe we need to, like, uh, stop and and have, do it differently. 
Anyway, I realize I have gone way over time and I really appreciate that you both came. What a great discussion. Thank, I really appreciate you, you both came and also our audience also, well, at least the ones who haven't gone off to watch um, TV New Zealand. But thank you so much. And Carmen, I so appreciate you doing that thing today, this week and for coming on today. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye, Nara. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye. Got it. See you. Got Lovely, it. guys. Happy channel. Bye, Josie. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.